for Sonia Morton Firth and you're tuned in to the Sonia Morton Firth Show. Here's a look at some of the inspiring stories from veterans that I've had on my show in 2021. In narcotics, in the drug strike, he was one of the key people in Afghanistan, in the heroin strike. He was also selling the locations of British, Canadian and American safe houses where SF troops were located. He was selling that information to the Taliban. Um, and I wasn't happy about that. So I gave evidence against him, got him re removed. But unknown to me, Afghanistan, back in 2006-2007, um, now we know basically it's a failed state, it's very co corrupt, where someone should have been removed from the post his partner was President Karzai's brother at the time in the drug strike. So he got promoted to upper parliament. So instead of being sacked, he actually got promoted and given more power. He put an allegation personally against me for absolutely whatever he wants to make it up. I ended up in prison. Everyone knows you pay a bribe in Afghanistan yeah, and you walk and out of jail. Um, but what shocked me was on entering the prison's system, I spotted some high-value targets. Senior terrorist commanders hiding in plain sight under different names in the Afghan prison's system. Now, this wasn't just any prison, was it? No. This was This one was Polishaki, maximum security prison, Afghanistan, which is voted one of the, in the top ten, most violent and most dangerous prisons in, in the world. So you were in there to serve three months. That must have, originally, that must yeah. have frightened you well, up uh, at the time. Hmm. How did that three months end up to be three years? Well, this is interesting. One, I wouldn't pay a bribe to get released. And it got to the point where I didn't want to get pulled out of there. Because, I just repeat that, yeah. you didn't want to no. be pulled out. No, not at that point, because what happened was we had stumbled. We had already known there was a network inside of Polishaki, but nobody from outside could get, get access. So some of the work I was doing before was in there. Polishaki came up on the, on the river radar. What we found out when I was in there was a suicide bombing network by Talib Jan was being run from inside maximum security. They had their own operations room. Satellite phones, cell phones, radios, computers. They were running the Akani network and part of the Taliban suicide bombing network from inside a British mentored jail. When I got sent to the airport, my instructions were I am only to be pulled out by the Americans if three separate sources confirm I've been rumbled and I was about to be executed. Three, not one, three separate independence okay. sources. So I didn't intend on coming out from there because we'd got Bin Laden, but there was something so else still we were working, working on. Away. Oh, yeah. yeah. I even had on my on my being when special branch, because they weren't figuring it out. Because my first thing was, uh, is the American RSO aware of me being pulled out of Polishaki? 
all the Brits were like, well, why would the Americans need to know? I said, because the RSO is the CIA station chief. Here's his personal mobile number. Ring him. I need to speak to him. So I got hold of the RSO. and said, I've been pulled. I'm on the way back to the UK. I have in my possession on me a black notebook, which you were going to need to have a look at because it was all the British call signs of patrols that were going to be attacked in the next 24 hours. Wow. And what did they do? And not even at that point did the British government or whoever was, you know, with you... The the extradition unit from Scotland Yard, quote, did not want to hand me over. They went, we have got this very, very wrong, haven't we? And I went, they went, you don't have, because they looked at the notebook, and I went... You've got the CIA station chief's yeah, personal they, they, mobile number, and we've confirmed it's him. What is going on? I said, so I can't not, speak about it. And were they not able to do it? So when you got back to our shores, were they yeah. not able to help you or do anything about it? Special branch recruited me within two days and said, we need you to go into the British prison system oh to my God. locate, this is the kicker, to locate and infiltrate the suicide recruitment cell working out of Pentonville and High Point. Social workers said to the judge, he is contemplating joining the military if this is still an option. And the judge's eyes lit lit up and, and he said to me, I'm going to defer sentence for six months. If you come back here and you are in the military, we will relook at things. If you're not in the military, I can promise you, you will be doing a custodial sentence. So the military saved you from going to prison, basically. 100%. And it, and it <clears throat> gave me a joining the military. Let me refresh. I was joining with a bunch of uh, everybody at the time was 16. It was a junior leaders regiment, so I was going there. Nobody knew anything about me, and I went there, and I was like the, the ultimate grey man. I kept myself to myself. I didn't talk about what I'd done in the past. I didn't, you know, a lot, a lot of young kids talk too much. Um, I sat back and started to excel. The sports, because I was into fitness. I've always been into my fitness when we done the boxing. It's quite handy. So, needless to say, I was going to win the boxing. So. And then started playing rugby. Again, it's an aggressive sport, so it was right up my street. Excelled. And then started getting recommended for paracommando training for different things. So, yeah, 100% the military saved, saved my life. In the back end of uh, 1990, I was getting ready for an Everest expedition. And um, the way the SAS works, the the four squadrons rotate around different roles. And it it used to change from six months to nine months. And we were on the anti-terrorist team, and they're the guys dressed in the black stuff and everything else. And um, in the August, when Saddam invaded, or July, uh, invaded Kuwait, I was told that um, I was still going on the expedition. Um, I wasn't to do, you know, worry about any build-up training or anything like that. And then in the December, I was told, you're deploying out to the Middle East with um, A Squadron and D Squadron, but it will only be half of B Squadron. And those guys 
and I was B Squadron, um, what we would become is battlefield casualty replacements. So that meant when A Squadron and D Squadron squadron went on the ground if any of the guys were killed or injured one of us would go in and take over that guy's position so during the build-up training we were the poor cousins because again it was like they're not going to be going out anywhere so we didn't get much training we certainly didn't have the right equipment behind the scenes um general swartkoff and uh, de billier were at loggerheads about putting boots on the ground Schwarzkopf, quite rightly, wanted to keep sending over the, the big bombers and just keep bombing the Iraqi positions. And then he said, we can roll armor over. The other problem that was happening is uh, Saddam kept firing scuds and a lot of them were hitting Israel. So there was a, there was a big risk that Israel could come into, the, into this conflict, which would complicate everything in terms of whose side, you know, or where was the alliances and everything else. So it was decided to send three patrols into northern Iraq in the Ambar region, which was very loyal to Saddam Hussein. And um, we, were put, we were to put uh, observation posts in, in on main supply routes. And if we saw a scud going down the road, we would then call in and then bring fast air to destroy that um, missile. So... I'll quickly run over some of the failings. Somebody had lost all our personal weapons or pistols. Uh, so when you had uh, long weapons, there's a, a mine called a claymore and we use it for protection. Um, whether you're in a static location or if you're being followed up by enemy forces, they'd all gone missing. My map dated back to 1944. My smock that they gave me, a sandy smock, had a date of 1940 on it. Oh my I mean, was this all because they didn't really think you were going to get involved? In yeah, like a, yeah, a squadron and D squadron had all the kit yeah. and they had all the big the vehicles and platforms and weapon systems. I had to go to a, a friend in A squadron and beg him to give me 40 mil grenades because I had a 203 rifle which has a grenade launcher slung underneath it. Um, we had one temp attempt to fly in. Um, which was, we had to pull back because there was a bombing raid going on. So we flew in the next night. Our rucksacks weighed in, well, from anything from 120 to 150 pound. Our belt kits that has the ammunition, they weighed anything from 40 to 50 pound. And then we had a jerry can of water, which was 50 pound and an NBC suit uh, for chemical weapons and extra rations. Now, with that type of weight, even an SAS soldier can't operate. So we were ferrying this kit in and we got to the point, we got in all right, very quiet. Once we got on the ground, we were expecting to dig underneath the sand. Well, what we found was it was hard bedrock. So we were above the surface and um, we couldn't get established comms because basically we were saying, really, we should be relocated. What had happened is the young signaler who had worked out the frequencies had worked out frequencies um, for Kuwait. Well, we were north of Baghdad, and that's like me having your home number, but not your city dialing code. So there was no chance of getting through. Well, um, as daylight lifted, we started to have a look around 
and then there was a ridge <clears throat> to our north, round from left to right, and on top of it was a large anti-aircraft um, gun. Now, we knew that the Iraqi officers were very good desert tacticians because we had trained them two years before in Sandhurst. So we were either very close to a military facility or there was troops in reserve and these anti-aircraft guns were there to protect them. So that night we went out and did reccees all over the place and we found multiple anti-aircraft positions. The next day we were compromised by a young goat herder and um, he brought in a guy that had a, a, like a, a large bulldozer he came into the wadi system, he could see us, he disappeared. We knew we'd been compromised. Um, <clears throat> I got onto the radio and I started knocking out uh, Morse code and I contacted a guy in Cyprus who had nothing to do with the regiment. I gave him a couple of code words and said, you know, we're, we've compromised, we're going to the um, emergency pickup and then ended. Well, as we started to walk out of the, um, the wadi system, there was two guys I would have said they were probably in their 40s, 50s, hard to tell, half in military dress, half in civilian, but they had two AK-47s. And they started to parallel us. So I, I, I called to the guys and I said, listen, we've got company, gather up. Now, if you can imagine these wadi systems come in all shapes and sizes, the, the, the bank side that they were on rose really steeply um, but to our right, there was a gradual elevation, but it was, uh, it was higher than, than the left side. Well, at one point, I just thought, you know what, I'm going to try and bluff my way. I, I will um, wave at these guys. So I lifted my left hand and waved at them, which was obviously an insult. And uh, they started shooting. So we returned fire. Uh, we dropped these two guys. And then um, more or less at the same time, several trucks, trucks turned up and Iraqi soldiers started to, to debus and um, it got very sporty. Um, Were you outnumbered at this? Oh, like yeah, yeah. Um, outnumbered probably five to one. There's, there was probably 20, 30 of them. And the, the ground was erupting and um, we were doing bursts. Oh, like pepper, what they call pepper potting. It's where you run back a couple of meters, you turn around, return fire, and then move in like fire and movement. And um, I can remember just shouting, well, we all shouted, we've got, to, we've got to drop our rucksacks, which meant we're losing our radios, our food, our warm kit. Because another thing, Iraq was having the coldest winter in 30 years. It you was, don't really think of cold weather when you think of Iraq. Yeah. <laughs> oh, no. Um, it was that cold with the other squadrons. They were having to put little burners under the uh, fuel tanks on the Land Rovers because the diesel was going to jelly. It was that cold. I'll, I'll get you. I'm going to give you an example of how cold it is without being too graphic. But we lost all our kit. We broke contact with the Iraqis. The firefight went on for 45 minutes. And the anti-aircraft positions, at some point, we came into view of them. And then they started firing at us. And honestly, the shell, the, the size of the shell from an anti-aircraft position if it hits you, you're vaporized. You know, these things were whizzing over our head. And as I said, we um, broke contact. We gathered our thoughts. <laughs> and um, 
you know, I, I couldn't believe nobody had been hit. So the way, the way it was, we decided to put what they call a dog's leg in um, to make it look like we were heading south to Saudi. And at some point we would walk over to the west and then head north to Syria. And that's what we did. And it, it seemed to work out, except when we turned to walk north, the patrol was split up. And um, one of the guys had gone down with heat exhaustion because he couldn't get his um, thermal underwear on. And during the, the firefight, he'd sweated himself dry. Um, I ended up maybe about 15 kilometers down to the left of the original uh, ridge line. So as I got there, turned around, I had two guys. Uh, one didn't have a weapon. So I ran to the top of this ridge line. I had my night sight. I was scouring for looking for the other five guys and um, nothing. I got onto a, an emergency taxi at um, 12 o'clock midnight and then uh, zero dark 30, um, 30 minutes later and uh, got no response whatsoever. So I said to the guys, we've got to start pushing away from this place because the tracks are there and the Iraqis will sweep through. So we walked for... Um, it was about another 30 kilometers. We did a total of 70 kilometers that night. That's 50 miles. And the ground that we covered, well, it was like large rocks. And all of us ended up with like blistered feet. I mean, we were shifting. Plus our bell kits were still about 45 to 50 pound and a 17 pound rifle. So we found ourselves in the open. And the only thing I came across was what they call a tank berm. And a tank berm is a it's a load of soil that's been pushed up to a height of maybe eight feet on three sides. A tank can come in, it has pr like protection around there and it can fire out. Well, there had been a tank in because it, it had subsided. So there was a little ditch and um, we, we lay in that ditch. And the next thing I was just waiting for the sun to come up. Um, I felt pins and needles on my face. I was going to say, and it was a drop because it was nighttime. Well, it was well no, it started snowing. It started snowing. snowing. Yeah, and we didn't have any protection clothing or anything. And it snowed and rained. But what I could see about 800 meters away was a, a boxed body vehicle or a permanent structure with a, a large mat, a mast. And there was at least um, four Iraqi soldiers around it. So I said to the guys, we're going to have to stay switched on here because... Within the Middle Eastern culture, they won't go to the toilet in front of one another. They would walk, you know, an hour to get privacy. And this was the only place where they could do that. As it was, the snow started bleaching down and then it would go turn to water. Now, I'm a qualified Alpine guide. I spent a year and a half being trained in Germany. I've, been, I've worked in some of the coldest places in the world. I knew it wasn't the Iraqis that was going to be the problem. We were going to die of Mother Nature. And it was we were going down, and there's nothing you can do about it. There was no going seeking help, because in the Ambar region, everybody was loyal to Saddam. And um, basically, it's something I have to live with, because I know I, it was through my actions, a guy died that night. Now... I said to them, we're not moving until it's dark. And um, when it came, when darkness fell, Vince 
was suffering from really severe um, hypothermia. So I gave, I took his weapon off him, gave it to um, Stan, and um, I said I would navigate up front. Now, my hands, I'd lost the use of my hands, my feet, um, the cold was in my spine, everything. Now, as we were walking, when you have severe hypothermia, you have mood swings. You can either, you can start crying, you can get very violent, you want to start screaming and shouting. Well, I knew because of the way our hands were, we couldn't oper operate our weapons. So if we bump into an enemy position, we're screwed. So I said to Stan, you, you keep Vince behind. I will walk about 50 meters in front. And if I, if I see the enemy, I will back off and then we'll skirt around them. Um, and at one point, I think it was close to midnight, um, Stan said, I've lost track of Vince. And um, I, I, I started walking back, going over the footprints, but you would come into large areas where the snow had drifted. And if your line of march was, say, straight through the, the screen here, when I entered, say, the left, I was going to the right, and my footprints weren't there. They were actually at a nine o'clock position. And this happened about four times, and I realized we were zigzagging like that, and it was me that was navigating. And that's when I realized how bad I was suffering from hypothermia. Now, we were walking back into the enemy position, and put my hand up. It was me that said, I'm taking responsibility. I'm calling off this search and we're going to carry on. Now, I know for a fact what would have happened with Vince is he would have found, he would have found a hollow. He would have sat in that hollow wanting to go to sleep. He would have stripped his clothes off and he would have died very, very quickly. Sixteen years old, joined Junior Leaders Regiment Royal Artillery as a boy soldier, and um, I was just super, super unfit. Um, I failed my basic army fitness test. It's a one and a half mile run. You're supposed to do it in ten and a half minutes, and I came in at ten minutes fifty three, and I hated it. Hated running. Uh, didn't like physical exercise at all, and and I was voted fattest person in the troop, and. Uh, you know, going on from that then, I just thought, you know, one day I'm going to, I'm going to be someone special or specialish. do you know what I mean? Or I'll achieve more than what you think I can achieve. But you've actually turned out to be an endurance athlete. Can you tell me a little bit more about some of the challenges that you've done? Yeah, so I, I uh, after 2-9 Commando, I came out, I was a bodyguard, lived in Park Lane, London for a short time then I became a personal fitness trainer and then I was just fascinated in people who were the people who fascinated me the most were the ultra distance runners I was like oh my god how can someone run 50 miles or 100 miles or beyond that sort of thing and it just go on I was gonna say had you got a level of fitness though in the army oh yeah I, was, yeah I was I was as a commando you are a lot fitter than the average person but this was taking it to a whole new level outside of any army uh, courses. So I just thought, that's, that's what I want to do. This is the ultimate in fitness and mental toughness uh, combined is ultra-distance running. 
So, um, basically, I remember reading about a guy called Ray Mouncy, and he was doing a run in Death Valley. It was like a, it was 200 miles, I think, and it was 20 mile a day. He was in his 50s, and uh, he, he had a very poorly son, and I was reading about him in the Daily Mail, and then I found out his address. I sent him a check uh, to support his cause, and then... I said to him, have you got a support driver to go out to Death Valley in California? And he said, no. He said, are you interested? And I said, yes. I said, I'll pay for everything. So I got my credit card out. <laughs> I just put everything on the credit card. And I was like, out I went then. We, we landed in Los Angeles and went out to Death Valley. And this is not no disrespect to Ray or anybody, you know. But when you get closer to people, you're like, I think I could do it. You know, I'm not saying I'm better than you right now, or, but I think I could do something similar. So then the next year, I decided to go for an organized event, which is the Marathon de Saab. It's like, a, I think it's about 135 mile over six days, seven days you get, but you can do it in six days uh, in the Sahara Desert there. It was, it was incredible, but um, I wanted to do a run that uh, was my own design. And like Ray had done, he designed his own Death Valley run. It was an organized event. And then I think it was the year, yeah, it was the year 2000. Uh, I did a 1,620 mile run from Denver to um, San Francisco. So that was Denver and then on to Aspen because I'd watched Dumb and Dumber and I was like, I want to go, I want to go there. It looks like a really cool place. <laughs> and then, but I just mapped out places that were just like cool. I was like Monument Valley. I want to see it. I want to see Grand Canyon. I want to go down to Phoenix, Arizona. I want to go to um, San Diego, go then up to LA and then uh, finish off on the Golden Gate Bridge. And, and, and that's what I did. I remember coming downwind and sort of reporting my position, you know, speaking to the tower below on the radio net and, and giving them the update for my position and coming crosswind. And as I came crosswind, uh, I looked out my left-hand canopy window and I saw a thin streak of visible yellow-orange sort of flame. And it was clearly... I almost had to look again because it was, it was definitely flame that I recognised and it was clearly coming from the front portion of the the fuselage, you know, sort of the casing surrounding the engine in front of me, you know, beyond the, wind, the windshield. And, and I started to think, oh my God, is that what I think it is? Is that flame? And as I made my final turn, sort of left banking now, 90 degrees left banking into wind now, and I'm setting myself up for a final approach towards the active runway below, so final approach, I make that turn, and the fire immediately breaches the cockpit down below. So my first alert on that was when I looked down at my feet on the rudder pedals, I could see the flame actually breach the cockpit. So your internally. feet were basically on fire. Yeah, so that's what happened. So where it breached my feet on those rudder pedals, the flame started to collect around the feet and ankles. I was wearing, I remember like these suede sort of new buck hiking shoes and socks. And the flame started creeping around those shoes and socks. And what was your what was your immediate uh, thoughts? What was going through? So your immediately, mind? I'm thinking, my God, my God, I've got to get this aircraft down. Got to get this aircraft down. And I'm looking forwards at the altimeter on the instrument yes. panel, 
and the altimeter is spinning down through 1,900, 800 feet, 700 feet. And as I'm descending, descending, um, I'm consciously aware that the fire is starting to build up within the confines of the cockpit. Were you feeling the pain at this point? Not really feeling the pain because there was some slight through draft because of the ventilation within the cockpit. But I won't lie to you that the initial fluster and the sort of onset of panic in my mind was starting to, was starting to sort of rear up. And I'm thinking, I've, I've got to get this aircraft down, got to get this aircraft down. And this is for real. This was no drill. And this was a real life emergency. And I've, indeed, I'd practiced for uh, emergency protocol with, with the engine during training, uh, a possible um, you know, emergency landing sort of situation. Uh, but this was an absolute real life scenario. And I had to get the aircraft down. There was no... no um, there was no margin for error regarding that. You know, I had to get it down onto the ground full stop. And as I'm descending, like I mentioned, fire is building up and I'm watching altimeter. So 700, 600, 500 feet. So I'm about half the drop now. So you couldn't just, sorry, and, and, and this is just me perhaps being a little bit ignorant. You couldn't have just bailed and pulled your parachute. Not at that height. Not at and that and height, many people have asked me, but we don't, you don't typically wear a, a parachute in a light aircraft. Okay and there's no kind of advanced system for sort of pull red handle for ejector seat. There is none of that. It's just a basic, very conventional single engine piston, light aircraft, uh, just a, a trainer or, or a basic commuter. Um, and, and so I didn't have that option. And, you know, I had to get the aircraft down onto the ground. So about 500 feet, I became super aware, if you will, that the fire was now about halfway up within the chamber of the small cockpit. And my alarm bells really started to ring at that stage. And it became a bit of a, a no-brainer, so to speak, that the chances are that I wasn't going to make it and that therefore I wasn't going to be able to run in to ground level, land it, and then roll into a four-stop halt. The likelihood was that I wasn't going to make it because the chances of the fire completely overwhelming me with that kind of time, elapsed time, you know, running into a full stop. And so I thought... Um, I thought the only way that I've got a chance is to do something a little bit different here, a little bit uh, irrational, if you will, but this was what I was going to do. So about 500 feet approximately, it was like, a, call it a light bulb moment. And this was my game plan. I gently veered my stick to the left. I just tweaked it maybe sort of 10 degrees or so away to my left. And I, I veered away from the concrete runway in the distance below towards a grassy stretch. And I was looking for a wide expanse of kind of grass off to my left gently running in towards that. Now I'm gliding in some 500, 400 feet, 300 feet. And now I start to look just beyond through the windshield left and right. I'm looking for hazard, looking for obstacles, looking for anything that's kind of going to be in my path. I'm looking for a clear run in while I'm gliding the aircraft in as gently as I could. And during that process, I also followed the emergency protocol. So I also flicked back to the training that I'd received from the US flight instructors. And I remember one of the flight instructors um, had, had always said to me, you know, if there's a problem, if there's an emergency, if you've got a problem, fly the damn aircraft. And of course, th that stuck with me. And I thought, this is what I've got to do. I've got to maintain control, fly the aircraft and glide into the last moment. So I kept running in, looking forward, looking left, looking right. And I'm literally, I'm aware that I'm dropping a lot of height now trying to scrub off as much airspeed as I could, but keep the nose a little bit heavy. And as I'm gliding in, switch everything off. So 
the, um, the ignition switch, the magnetos, the red switches, alpha and bravo off, off, the master switch off, the lights off, the strobes off, uh, the fuel pump off, and the fuel selector valve, everything off in sequence following the dashboard. Remove my headset, throw it in the opposite footwell, unbuckle my three-point harness over the shoulders and the waist, and then um, open the canopy door to my left, and very low level, so 50 feet, 40 feet, 30 feet, and then 20 feet thereabouts, and I was just quick as anything, up onto the seat. I managed to clamber through that now open door aperture onto the left wing, and then I just went for it. I have a, a book, a notebook, and I write sayings down from Churchill, Orwell, and uh, the inspire, the, the rise, don't you? They the make you feel a uh, good sort of thing, you know. Yeah, and, it's like a positive yeah, affirmation. That's right. yeah, 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 that's it. So, um, yeah, it's even though you know your back is against the wall sort of thing, you go, well, you know, this is the job we do. We've got to get on with it. And, and to answer your question even further is that one evening we're behind enemy lines and it was early hours one morning and we sat in the vehicles and all of a sudden we could see flashes in the distance and we realised it was Baghdad getting bombed, getting attacked. And we just sat there quietly and uh, we must have been there for over an hour and nobody said anything. But we could see Baghdad was, was taking some real punishments and we could mm. see flashes and from uh, aircraft coming in and we could see Baghdad responding. And we didn't say anything. It was only till the next day that we had a chat and we said, you know, last night we could, we knew that people were being killed. Um, innocent people, not intentionally, mm -hmm. but because of conflict, you get this, you know, and we said, whatever we can do, we've got to do our best we possibly can. You talked about earlier on the other problems were radios. Mm. We couldn't, we had no communications with anyone. So we wasn't sure that the information was, was getting back. Did you know what had happened to Bravo 2-0? Because they were both on foot and obviously they, unfortunately their, their missions had been compromised. Yes, they? yes. The, the, what had happened about that, because of the problems with the radios, we were sending blind, hoping that our headquarters were receiving the information. And there was one evening that we got garbled messages back. We were just trying to make sense of it. And we're almost certain that Bravo 2 Zero were on the run, but we couldn't do anything. What a start, we were all working independently. We were all in different areas, even though our, our tasks were, were the same. And because we couldn't communicate by radio, there was nothing we could do. And that was very, very frustrating. We also knew that we had another two squadrons that were fighting independently coming up behind us from the Saudi border over into Iraq and coming up behind us. And we knew that they had had problems as well. And we were almost certain that people had died. And, and that, that was a low point. And plus it started snowing as well in the desert. So there we were, couldn't communicate. We'd just seen Baghdad getting bombed. Um, we, were, we were almost certain that Bravo 2 were was on the run, or we weren't sure that they'd been killed. Mm. And we'd heard that other patrols had been hit as well. And bear in mind, we, we know these guys. So that was a, a, a low point. And then we was even more determined to kind of see it through, no matter what problems we were having. And uh, um, it, it, yes, that was a low point at that time. But 
you just got to get on with the job. You've got a task to do, a mission to do. Let's get this done and let's get on. Hope you enjoyed the show. Remember, there's a new interview out every Monday. So hit subscribe and like and you'll get it straight into your inbox. I believe health is the greatest form of wealth we have, which is why I'm so excited to be partnered with Brother in Arms. Brother in Arms is a wellness brand dedicated to working with veterans, first responders, and anyone on the front line. Through their education, support, and premium CBD products, they help alleviate and restore the lives of those that have been affected by physical and mental trauma. Learn about the life-changing benefits and power of CBD. Join their community today. Hit the link below.